all who are able are invited to stand for the reading of the gospel lesson. The gospel of our Lord according to St. Luke. On one occasion, when Jesus was going to the house of a leader of the Pharisees to eat a meal on the Sabbath, they were watching him closely. When he noticed how the guests chose the place of honor, he told them a parable. When you're invited by someone to a wedding banquet, do not sit down at the place of honor in case someone more distinguished than you has been invited by your host. And the host who invited both of you may come and say to you, Give this person your place. And then, in disgrace, you'd have to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit down at the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher, and then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. He also said to the one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors in case they may invite you in return and you'd be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous." Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever, the gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. I remember trying to play Pokemon with my kids. I mean, they had these huge decks of Pokemon cards. And they'd say, Dad, you want to play Pokemon? Yeah. I mean, what am I supposed to say, right? Yeah. So like an easy mark on a Coney Island boardwalk, I said, sure, but you'll have to remind me of the rules. You see, that right there, that's a dead giveaway that you're a sucker. <laughs> well, you don't know the rules? Nah, don't, don't worry, I I'll teach them to you as we go. You ever had a kid teach you the rules of a game as you go? Better question, did you ever win a game that started out with a kid saying, don't worry, I'll teach you the rules as we go? So uh, here's how that goes. First, you have this deck of cards, Dad. I'll play one of the cards from my deck, and then you put one of your cards up against mine, and they'll do battle, and the winner gets to keep the other one's card. Well, okay, that, I mean, that sounds easy enough. And, and it does sound easy, doesn't it? I mean, you just play a card, and it's sort of like when you play the card game War. You, 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 you turn over a card, and the bigger card wins. I mean, it's easy, easy peasy. But my next question is where things always start to slide into weirdness. Okay, all right, now I get it that the biggest card wins, but I still have a question. How do I know which card is bigger? Or in this case, if bigger isn't the right word, better. In other words, how will I know if I won? Don't worry. I'll tell you when you win. 
See, that right there is a recipe for frustrated daddy. Now, I'm no pushover, mostly. I mean, I know I'm going to be frustrated, so I say, all right, but then you try to sort of turn tracks on the, uh, change tracks on the sly, and you say, well, how do you know when your card is better than mine? See, now that feels like a pretty easy, straightforward question. It requires only an easy, straightforward answer. But every time I get to that point in the conversation, my kids are capable of coming up with more creative responses than one of our former president's attorneys. Well, the thing is, it, it's kind of complicated. You're just going to have to trust me. And I said, well, can you be just a little bit more specific? And I mean, it's like Jake Tapper trying to get a straight answer out of a politician committed to avoiding giving any straight answers. It was like nailing jello to a tree. Now, let me ask you a question. If you're buying a house and you get to the closing and the bank official says, you need to sign these, and you say, fine, but what are these? And the bank person says, eh, it's complicated. You just trust me. What do you say? Right? What are you, nuts? If I'm playing your game, I want to know the rules before I have to make any decisions. Otherwise, I'm in danger of being taken for a ride. Look, I'm, I'm no fuss budget, but playing a game without clear rules is a fool's errand. Especially when the people in charge always seem to find a way to massage the rules so that they get to win the game. Culture, politics, economy, I mean, they all work that way, don't they? I'm not telling you anything new when I say that all these systems operate by a set of rules, even if those rules are unwritten, which shouldn't be a controversial claim. I mean, Wittgenstein even said that reality is shaped by language games, the rules of which most people learn without even knowing. So, all right, here's the game. If, if, if I say the numbers are two, four, six, eight, 10, so on and so forth, 98, 100, what's the next number? Wrong, it's 104. See, the, the game we're playing is you count to 100 by twos and then you count from 100 to 1,000 by fours. If you don't know the rules of the game that you're playing, you can wind up playing the wrong game, which is how the folks in charge always seem to win. I mean, you know, take the whole student loan forgiveness thing this past week. There's a lot of strong opinions out there, aren't there? I mean, one side says, now oh, look, wait a minute. I mean, change the rules on us. You said we needed to be responsible for paying for our own education. So we worked, we saved, we sacrificed to graduate from college without any debt. And now you're gonna give, you come along and give, forgive debt to those people who messed around and took on more student loan debt than they could ever repay? And, and, and you're saying that we're gonna have to pay for it? Yeah, I don't think so. Now, it's a compelling argument, isn't it? Unfortunately, it doesn't necessarily take into account the other side and how they've understood the rules of the game that they've been playing. 
Because the other side says, well, all right, first of all, the costs for a college education have tripled over the last 40 years, while the government has slowly throttled spending for education. So paying for college today is a completely different game from the one a lot of people complaining right now played when they were going to college. A government Pell Grant, for instance, which used to cover 80% of a tuition cost, now pays for only about a third of that same cost. Secondly, we've gotten the relentless message that going into college is the only way to be anything in this world. Unfortunately, most of us can't afford to work our way through school like folks used to. I mean, even if we were working 60 hours a week at minimum wage. So the only way for us to afford to play the game we were told that everybody was playing was to take out student loans. But the, even the rules on student loans have changed. Now we can't, if we can't find a job or if something happens to us, catastrophic, we can't even discharge these loans in bankruptcy. They follow us around like relentless ghouls until we die. And then finally somebody comes along to help remedy the problem for 43 million of us and the only thing that some folks can think about is how they sacrificed to go to school and maybe somehow we didn't sacrifice? I mean, you, you see the problem, right? I mean, two groups of people who are convinced that they've been playing the same game, but it turns out they were playing completely different games because the rules are different. In other words, you, you, you can play by the rules, but if it's the wrong rules, which is to say the wrong game, you, you, you're never going to win. And what's worse, the people who told you to play the game, they keep changing the rules of the game. So it's almost impossible to win. But ironically, when it looks like the folks in charge might lose, man, they start howling like long-tailed cats in a room full of over-caffeinated people in rocking chairs. Now, when Jesus goes to eat at the house of a Pharisee, he gets thrown into the middle of a game where the rules are once again written by the folks at the top of the heap. In this game, the seating chart is the centerpiece. Important people down front, rest of y'all losers in the back. Now, it sounds like things have mainly stayed the same throughout the years. Important people down front, losers. You're going to have to take the cheap seats. So this scenario initially doesn't sound too odd to our ears. I mean, we kind of understand it, but there is one big difference. The ancient Near East lived in what is called an honor-shame-based culture. What is that, you may ask? Well, an honor-shame-based culture has been the dominant tool for mapping social location throughout history. It's a system, the purpose of which is to position people in the social pecking order. It's also a system, interestingly enough, that a significant part of the world continues to live under even today. Caste systems, feudal systems, they're all largely honor-shame-based systems. You know who's at the head of the food chain and who's always bringing up the rear. It's mapped out for you. 
the question comes, how are those social calculations made? Which is to say, how do people climb the ladder or slip down it in that kind of a cultural system? Well, the currency in honor-shame culture is, you guessed it, honor. And shame is the way you lose honor. There are five basic unwritten rules in such a culture, according to one commentator. One, family defines everything. Since honor is a shared commodity, you're taught from an early age that everything you do reflects on your family. In an honor-shame culture, your identity is your reputation. And your reputation comes from your family. If you want to find out about a person, all you have to know is who's their family. Two, social capital fixes anything. If your most important asset is your reputation, and if people respect you, then you can accomplish almost anything in a world like this. This is where we get the modern notion, it's not what you know, it's who you know, right? Nothing can get so far out of hand that if you, don't, if you know the right people, that you can't get out of it. Three, aggression restores honor. If honor is the capital, any insult to one's honor must be vigorously defended. So when a woman, for example, is shamed, if her male relatives don't defend the woman's family name with aggression, either against the woman herself or against the aggressor, then the family loses honor and it accumulates shame. That's why in some cultures there, are, there still exists the horrific practice of honor killings, right? Four, words define status. Now, in modern Western cultures, words communicate information, facts, opinions. But in honor-shame cultures, words are tools for establishing the social pecking order. You speak with respect and deference to people who are above you, and you speak with authority to people below you. It's why Mr. and Mrs. and Ms. and Reverend Doctor and Duke and Duchess and Your Majesty, th th those are all called honorifics. In fact, we even call judges what? Your honor. Five. Food conveys honor in such a world. In honor-shame cultures, whom you eat with defines your community and your identity. The breaking bread with someone is a way of showing honor to that person, of, of reaffirming the social relationships that everybody needs to get along in this kind of world. Now, food in modern Western cultures represents fuel or things by which we satisfy our cravings, right? Which is why we often find ourselves eating alone. Eating alone in an honor-shame culture is unthinkable, in which figuring out the guest list 
And seating chart is one of the most important social acts, one of the most fundamental rules of living in such a world. To put a finer point on it, the world Jesus occupied and the one we occupy as modern Westerners are wildly different. Now, even though it seems to us a trivial matter, when Jesus threatens to mess with the seating chart at a dinner thrown by an important person, he's stomping through a social minefield that threatens to turn his world completely on its head, alienating the goodwill of all the people who are higher up the social ladder than he is. See, everybody's playing by the same rules, which have been drummed into their heads from the time they were babies, I mean, they're not written down or anything, but everybody has a deeply imprinted understanding of those rules and how they're supposed to act. Everybody knows. But Jesus comes along and he says, you know what? I, I don't like that game. I don't like the rules of the seat chart game. But don't worry, I, I, I'll teach you a new one. I, I, I'll teach you as we go. The game we play in the coming reign of God turns out to be devastating to the old rules, the honor-shame rules. Flips them on their head. You know, the whole, the last shall be first and the first shall be last stuff I've been talking to you about. Remember that? So it's pretty easy to understand why, given the unwritten rules of the honor-shame game, that everybody was certain that Jesus had lost his mind. What's he doing? But Jerome Nere writes that Jesus' selection of table companions is no mere lapse of regard for the customs of his day. It's a formal strategy. Although likes should eat with likes, by eating with sinners and foreigners, Jesus formally signals that God extends an inclusive invitation to non-observant and sinful outsiders for covenant membership and for status as forgiven persons. He's completely chucked the rules out the window. So here's the thing. I mean, Jesus isn't just playing by a different set of rules. He's been playing an entirely new game here. In the reign of God that Jesus is proclaiming, the old rules, which always seem to make winners of the rich and the powerful, will give way to a new world in which the people who couldn't even get past the bouncers to get into the party are finally ushered to the places of honor at the head of the table. What's more, Jesus says, as you're sending out invitations, don't just invite the people who can reciprocate. In the new reign, there is no quid pro quo, no you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Why? Because according to the rules of this new game, our primary motivation isn't climbing the social ladder. Our motivation is now, according to Jesus, to serve the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. In other words, Jesus isn't just playing fast and loose with local cultural mores here. He's challenging the whole social, religious, political, and economic system that forces us to think in categories like rich, poor, powerful, powerless, oppressor, oppressed, healthy, broken. See, Jesus isn't inviting us to forget about this world and concentrate on the next one. 
He's inviting us to begin living as if this new realm of God's hospitality is already present with us, fully realized here and now. And the thing of it is, when we begin to practice this sort of countercultural hospitality, we soon come to learn that we were never in charge of the guest list or the seating chart in the first place. Turns out those are God's responsibility. And we're going to have to get comfortable playing by a new set of rules, rules that tell us God's much more generous about who gets in and where they get to sit than we are. But see here, the good news is, even if we have difficulty admitting it to ourselves, we, each of us, are forever in need of just that kind of generosity. We all need a God who loves us without ever looking at the org chart to see whether we're worth loving or not. We're still playing by the rules. We're just playing a different game now. And you know what? Thank God for that. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate the podcast on iTunes, retweet the link, or just tell your friends. Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.